Welcome to the Diabetics Doing Things podcast. We've been telling the amazing stories of type 1 diabetics all across the world since 2015, and we have over a thousand years of living with T1D on the podcast. The interviews range from incredible feats to everyday victories, and we celebrate them all just the same. Thanks for listening, and if you want to get involved even further, just send me an email at rob at diabeticsdoingthings.com. What's up, everybody? Just wanted to say thank you for listening to this podcast. It's been an amazing journey thus far, and I have a lot of really great stuff coming up in the future. Uh, so I'm going to do something that I haven't asked before. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, A, I would love it if you would subscribe to the podcast just so you get the notifications whenever we publish new episodes, because if you've been listening for a while, you know I don't always publish them consistently. Sometimes I'll publish five in a week. Sometimes it'll be only a couple in a month. And you need to know when these episodes drop. So be sure to subscribe. And if you like the podcast, be sure to go to your preferred platform like iTunes and leave a review. I would love to boost my reviews. And I've never asked you guys to do that before. So I figured you don't ASK, you don't GET. I would love a review from you. So I want to hear from you there. Also, we are now available on Spotify. Turns out I was just submitting it to Spotify incorrectly, but I corrected that, so now we're on Spotify. So if that's your preferred listening platform, be sure to subscribe on there. Also, just want to let you know that in 2019, we have an awesome new program coming called Tools of Type 1s. It's going to be on this podcast, so you don't have to subscribe anywhere new, but it's going to be an entirely new form of programming with some of your favorite Type 1 personalities. So they're going to be two a week starting January 8th. Be sure to tune in, and I'm going to blast all the messaging I can all around. So be sure to listen to Tools of Type 1s launching January 8th, and thank you for continuing to listen to this podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Health IQ. And if you don't remember Health IQ from the previous episodes that they've sponsored, Health IQ is an insurance company on a mission to improve the world's health by rewarding runners, cyclists, weightlifters, swimmers, yogis, well-managed diabetics, and other Americans living a healthy lifestyle. They're actually the first insurance company rewarding patients with type 2 diabetes who manage their A1C with a healthy diet and exercise with large savings on their life insurance. To support the show and get a free quote, Go to healthiq.com slash DDT. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We are telling the amazing stories of type 1 diabetics from all across the world. And I'm very, very excited to introduce you to my special guest today, John Roth. Uh, welcome to the show, sir. How are you? Great. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. I, uh, I'm really glad that we, uh, we got time for this. Uh, you know, you and I tried to link up before the holidays and, um, I believe you heard my uh, first heard about uh, my podcast on Vinny Tortorich's show. Um, And I'm really glad we were able to make the connection. Absolutely. Yeah. I was uh, kind of surprised at the, um, I guess the promptness you got back to me. It was, uh, I I don't really know how some of the various uh, folks that are involved with the podcast world work. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's great to hear back from you. Well, I, I try to stay as current on email as possible, um, and I say try because there are some that, that slip oh, yeah. through the cracks. But uh, yeah, I think uh, you know my my platform is built on the amazing guests that I get to have on. So anytime I get uh, an email inquiry uh, or an Instagram message or or any kind of communication, I try to get respond as quickly as I can. So happy to do it. Excellent. So uh, why don't you just kind of introduce yourself a little bit, tell us about you, and then uh, tell us how you uh, found yourself in the type 1 diabetes family. Right. So um, I guess just for uh, starters, um, my uh, initial interest and or yeah, introduction into the whole um, you know type 1 diabetic uh, community uh, began about three years ago, um, was diagnosed at age uh, 36. Um, which is a, you know, from what I understand is a fairly late age, not unheard of, but a fairly late age to get uh, a diagnosis. And, um, you know, my, um, ultimate, I guess, um, end point was of course, uh, involved in emergency room, which was, uh, not ideal. 
Um, and uh, prior to that, you know, I, I had a very, uh, I guess, full uh, life before that um, without diabetes. So it's uh, definitely enabled me to see kind of both sides of the of the coin, so to speak, um, and has given me a little bit of perspective, you know, moving forward. Um, and, uh, you know, from that point on, it's just been a constant um, progression of, um, I guess, education. And then uh, also the diagnosis of diabetes has um, had a pretty profound effect on my career because I, I'm in one of the very few professions where um, a insulin dependent uh, and or type 1 uh, diabetic um, is a disqualifying event for my uh, chosen career path. So. And, and why don't you tell us a little bit about what that was like? Because like you said, I think you know, you, being diagnosed later in life uh, than normal, obviously, like you said, not unheard of. Um, but at an age like 36, like you have a profound memory of life before type one. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, in that time, you know, you worked in a profession um, as a commercial pilot, correct? And, yes. and that's, that's not something that you just wake up and decide to do. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, training and schooling and, and, and part of that process. Sure. Um, so, you know, walk us through kind of the days leading up to, or the weeks even leading up to the diagnosis. And then, uh, immediately after when you sort of had to realize, oh no, the, a lot is going to change. Sure. So, um, you know, as you said, um, I was a, uh, commercial airline pilot. Um, still, I guess technically am, I actually still function as a uh, instructor pilot with the same company that, um, I was previously flying for. Um, so at least that uh, portion of my career didn't uh, completely evaporate. But um, <clears throat> yeah, you know the the probably months you know leading up to it, you know, it gives you a lot more perspective once you've been diagnosed and you start recognizing some similar stories, and you know you become a little bit more familiar with the um, you know I guess the warning signs or the symptoms, I suppose you could say. Um, and I, I believe it it started. Probably um, in the November, December timeframe um, of, uh, let's see, it would have been, well, it would have been 2015 now. Um, and then 2016, um, you know, um, going into, you know, January is when, you know, all those symptoms really started to pile up. Um, you know, probably three to maybe four months prior to my diagnosis, I started to, um, you know, have some minor issues with, uh, my, um, vision, you know, I started to have, you know, a little bit of blurred vision, not significant, but just enough where I thought maybe my prescription on my contacts were, um, were changing or was changing and, um, you know, went into a, uh, not an ophthalmologist, but an, uh, just a regular optometrist and, you know, they made a couple adjustments and, you know, that worked out okay for a little bit. And then, you know, it, it, seemed right, but then it, it changed again. And, you know, all those, you know, that was, of course, I think the, some of the initial signs, um, you know, followed by, you know, more and more fatigue. Um, my wife and I both, you know, maintain a really active lifestyle and, you know, I enjoy, you know, physical fitness and, you know, being in the gym and outdoor sports and all that. And it just became, you know, more and more fatiguing to do, a workout or, you know, to do a, a ride or a run or anything like that, that was just an everyday thing for me. And that, um, you know, it was a little strange. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, the fatigue to start to get more prevalent. And then, um, I started to come back from trips. Um, you know, I'd be gone for three to four days sometimes. And, um, you know, my, my wife, you know, started to notice, you know, that I was losing weight. And, um, you know, became concerned. Um, and I would say just prior to going into the hospital, um, you know, I guess I'm kind of sitting at about 170 pounds right now and about six, two, um, I'd lost almost 20 pounds. So it was significant. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, so finally I was, uh, my wife was coming home from my night shift. She's a veterinarian and, um, you know, I was down in, in the kitchen, you know, just trying to get some breakfast and uh, get ready to head back out for another three-day trip. And, you know, I just didn't feel right. And, uh, 
you know, I told her, I said, you know, I, I think I'm going to call in uh, what we call call in fatigued or uh, unfit to fly, i.e. sick, um, because I just, I don't feel right. And she kind of saw me and, you know, in her words, you know, I looked like death warmed over and she said, no, you're, you're not just calling in sick. We're also going to the emergency room right now. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, and off we went, you know, down, down the road and, you know, went into the emergency room and kind of gave him a brief description of, you know, why I was there. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they did a, uh, a finger stick and of course the meter that they had used at the front desk, basically, uh, it was off the charts and, you know, they started to kind of part the ways in the emergency room, which, you know, of course at that time I was like, well, that's not good. <laughs> right. So, um, it's, it's kind of quick. It's kind of amazing how quickly that happens. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, they basically, as soon as I'm sure they saw the, you know, high or whatever it read, you know, immediately they were like, you come back here with us. <laughs> so and, now, uh, now something I hear a lot with, uh, with people who are diagnosed around the same age as you were, even, even down to like age 20 sometimes, uh, sure. is a little bit of misdiagnosis because of, you know, the either predisposition, uh, you know, the popularity of type two, I guess. And, uh, you know, just the age, uh, sort of misinformation right. that type two only happens to children or type one only happens to children. Uh, was there any of that, um, at your diagnosis or were they like, nah, this is pretty much clearly type one? No. Um, so luckily I got into a really good hospital. Um, and, uh, no, they, they took me right back to the ICU and, and, uh, you know, I, I think, um, after they had already begun some of the treatment, um, if I recall, my blood sugar was 793. Yeah, you know, somewhere in that range. Yeah. So, yeah. So it was, it was definitely up there. Um, and of course, you know, all the electrolyte imbalances and, and weight loss, they, they didn't seem to have really any question of the fact that it was type one. They did seem to be rather surprised that I was, I'd walked in there instead of uh, come in and a stretcher or a wheelchair. <laughs> so I don't know, but, um, no, they, they, they were pretty, you know, they, they knew what it was right away. Um, and that could have been, you know, the advantage of going to a full fledged hospital straight away, um, versus, you know, maybe like in uh, a more of a standalone ER and some of those, um, you know, the various urgent cares that are around now, you know, sometimes they, they might struggle a little bit more with a definitive diagnosis, but, um, no, it, it, that, that night or that day, I should say, um, you know, it was, there, there wasn't any gray area there. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, it's always interesting the, the circumstances around, you know, those diagnoses. I think, uh, you know, for you, your wife uh, saying, Hey, you know, you're not just calling in sick. You're going to go to the hospital. Like you can, the ability to like look at someone and tell that something's so wrong. Uh, for me, that was my mom. Uh, you know, I came, I came downstairs on new year's day and she was like, no, we're going now. Uh, right. and then you get, you get there and it's just like, it all happened so fast. I think something for me that I remember, you know, after I got into the emergency room, after the initial shock, uh, and all these, you know, explanation, I remember them filling me up with saline solution and insulin. And I just felt so good that there was a little oh, yeah. bit, a little bit of, uh, almost like reassurance that I was like, okay, well, this is definitely what was wrong with me. Do you uh, experience yeah. any of that kind of, uh, you know, early on in your hospital stay? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, like you said, it's, it's hard to, I guess, see, you know, see yourself, I guess, when it's kind of like a progression and, you know, I guess some of the other things I had going on, of course, you know, I was like getting up, you know, multiple times a night to go pee and like, you know, couldn't make it more than a couple hours without having to, you know, go hit the can, that kind of stuff. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, like when when I get got to the hospital and you know they got me hooked up to some IVs and um, you know started I guess treatment per se. Um, yeah, it was it was there was definitely like a sense of you know one it was I kind of describe it as one cloud was lifted and another one moved in you know because being at the age and in the position I was in my career the the cloud of you know that 
fatigue and, and just sense of not doing well. I mean, I was almost thinking that I was going to go in and they were going to say that I had some cancer or something, you know? Um, and that kind of got alleviated. But then while I was in the ICU, you know, I, I started to pull up, you know, the FAA webpage while I was sitting there just basically waiting for this stuff to, to work and come around. You know, I, I looked it up and I, I kind of knew right from filling out my, um, medical or first class medical, um, papers that you have to, you know, do, uh, once, once every two years or once a year, generally as an airline pilot, that one of the things that they specifically ask you about on there is diabetes. And so I looked it up and of course, insulin dependent diabetics, um, you know, was in a disqualifying event. So that second cloud moving in was basically the evaporation of my career as, as I saw it. So that was kind of an odd feeling. <laughs> yeah, I imagine it's sort of like a little bit of relief at the, you know, hey, we caught this, I'm going to be okay. And then immediately the dread of, okay, well, this is going to be a little bit life-changing here. Right. Yeah, exactly. So what were the next few days, moments like for you from a professional standpoint? I mean, obviously – you called in and, and you go to the hospital you and you know that this is this is there what uh what was next how did those next sort of conversations go yeah so um you know i, I spent that night in in the hospital actually in in an icu um and you know um, of course my wife stayed with me for you know until early evening time and i kind of asked her just to go home and, and get some sleep because she had come off a night shift and, you know, she didn't need to be <laughs> hanging out in the hospital with me. I figured I'd, you know, had it under control, so to speak. And, um, but, uh, you know, I guess that night and then the next day in the hospital, you know, I just kind of started to go through the process of like, yeah, you know, how, how is this going to affect work? And, you know, how, you know, how do I need to go about, <clears throat> you know, informing people, um, so, you know, luckily, um, you know, through my employer, you know, I had short and long-term disability. So, you know, I got that in, you know, underway, talked to, um, my chief pilot and just tell, told him that I was going to be out for a prolonged period of time due to a, a medical issue that it was still kind of at play right now. And that I wasn't sure what the ramification was going to be, you know, acute or, you know, looking forward. Um, and then, you know, started to, um, I guess use some of the, the references not really references, but resources through, um, our pilot group. It's not really a pilot union, um, where our airline is non-union, but, um, it's a, it's a pilot representative group for our, for our company and started to talk with them as far as, you know, how I needed to go about, you know, addressing this. Um, and yeah, I just, you know, started that, that ball you know, down the road, so to speak. Um, so it's, it's one of those things where in aviation, because of the fact that various medical conditions could have such a, a significant effect on your ability to fly, you know, um, most people in the aviation industry will identify with the fact that pilots in particular, you know, tread lightly around medical issues. It's not that we're trying to hide anything, we just don't want to disclose something or start something um, in a particular direction that it doesn't need to get started, if that makes sense. Right. And so I, I imagine that is a you know fairly stressful or at least uh, you know playing cards close to the vest um, type situation where you're you know just trying to make the right move uh, right. From, from a career standpoint and still you know make the right moves personally and, and for your health as well. Um, sure. So, I mean, but did everything, uh, everything work according to the plan or were there ever hiccups or was there ever, you know, difficult conversations? How did that, how did that all play out? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it was one of those deals where you kind of have to, you kind of have to, uh, you know, um, improvise as you go along because of course, you know, up until that point, you know, I, you know, uh, you know, was physically fit, you know, kind of made it a point in my life to, to, to include fitness and health 
And, you know, it was one of those things where luckily I had a lot of the, you know, insurance and, um, you know, disability and, you know, good standing with the company and, and all that kind of stuff in place, but I didn't know how it all worked. So I had to kind of fish through that. So that was definitely a, a very, um, aggressive learning curve. Um, I did have a distinct advantage, um, in my situation in that, <clears throat> uh, my chief pilot, his son, um, was actually diagnosed with type one diabetes, uh, I believe when he was 11, if I recall. Um, and so once, you know, I made it clear to him that that's what I was dealing with. Um, you know, Rob had always been a, a very, very good, uh, manager and, you know, is now one of, you know, a good friend of mine. Um, and he said, you know, well, you know, I, I definitely understand that. And at the time I didn't know that his son was a type one diabetic, but he told me at that time and he said, you know, you take all the time you need, you know, the company isn't going to you know, leave you out twisted in the wind, you know, get your health figured out and, you know, get back to me when you can. So, you know, that, that alleviated some of the initial stress, which was good. Um, so, you know, and then from there it was just kind of a matter of, um, once I kind of realized I wasn't going to be able to fly, um, I kind of switched over into, okay, uh, you know, now what, or now what can I do? Is, is there any other facet or function I can serve in the company to stay with the company? Because it's, you know, one that, um, at that time I was with, um, with them for seven years and, uh, you know, I, they had been a great company and, you know, I didn't really want to leave besides the fact of, you know, and, and this is, you know, something I've you know heard folks talk about on your show and, and other shows when you leave one profession to another, you know, of course, then you get into that whole insurance debacle. And, you know, that was of course heavily on my mind as well. Yep. So, um, so I kind of immediately started to send out emails and, um, kind of work my way up the food chain. Um, ultimately, you know, at the, basically the CEO of the company and, you know, they just said, you know, here's all the company openings apply for them. And, uh, you know, we'll do the best we can to find a good fit for you and get you to interviews within the company. Um, and, uh, that's ultimately how it ended up in the training department. Um, um, you know, as an instructor, so it, it worked out. It was, um, yeah, it was, I'd say it was about a, a six month process to, by the time it was all said and done. So. So, so, yeah, I mean, at that point, a lot of patience and then, I mean, obviously you had done the work to build the relationship and, and, uh, and the equity in that company, I guess for lack of a better term for them to do that, but you know, a big step of faith and, and, uh, and, you know, a great company move for them to you know, find a place for you. Right. Uh, and you, you hear horror stories of, uh, of oh, employers yeah. that don't, that don't take that approach. Um, sure. and I mean, I, I imagine felt, you felt pretty empowered by that, you know, them at least helping you out and placing you in a, in a place where you could, you know, continue your career with them. Um, but, right. And obviously like it didn't end there, you know, you, you know, obviously you're, uh, you know, fly, you still fly at some, on some level, just not the same as you did before. Am I right? Um, yeah. So actually just in the last six months, um, through, um, another organization that, um, is called aviation, um, or, uh, aeromedical service. Um, they specialize in helping pilots, you know, submit paperwork through the FAA if they have what's called a special issuance um, medical. And there's, there's three different levels of medical certi certificates for pilots. Um, just a brief overview for, you know, the, yeah. the, you know, the, 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 over, the other folks, um, you kind of have two facets. You have your pilot certificates that require all the training and knowledge and tests and, you know, and so on for various levels of flying, kind of starting off with your, um, just private pilot's license, which is, you want to go up and fly your own airplane or rent an airplane with your friends and family and there's no money involved. Like you're not being, it's not for hire. And then you kind of move on to your commercial pilot's license. And then from there you have what's called an ATP, which is the Air, airline transport pilot. Well, everything above at and above a 
commercial airline pilot or excuse me, com- commercial pilot's license requires um, a second or first class medical. And there's three different classes. The third class medical um, is kind of the lowest level. And that's what's required for a private pilot. And that's what I was just most recently able to regain because they, the FAA does have allotments to get a special issuance for a third class medical for private pilots. But currently, and that's what, you know, myself and many other pilots are advocating for is that they extend those criteria to allow for a special issuance for a second or first class medical. And that would therefore allow an insulin dependent diabetic to still be an airline pilot. Um, so, um, I, I can still fly privately, um, you know, smaller aircraft or not for hire. Um, which it, which is, is nice. I was able to, you know, take my wife up this summer and, you know, do a little bit of flying on the side for just recreational purposes. But, um, as far as uh, professionally, you know, I'm, able to do um non-flying like observation flights in our company aircraft like all commercial airline um jets have a jump seat which is in the flight deck but it's not one of the pilot positions so i'll do that and then i do um training on our you know ground schools for the or for this one aircraft type that i'm um that i teach on and then some of the um non-motion flight simulators and some of the flight simulation um just before they go on to their, their final stages of training for this type of airplane. So, um, what was, what was that like? I, I mean, I guess two times, like what are two questions? Sure. The first time after your diagnosis that you got, you know, in the cockpit and you took, and you flew the uh, a plane, any plane, uh, what was that feeling like? You, oh, you mean the, like the first time I, yeah. Uh, when I first began flying. When you no, no, well, no, no. Uh, after your oh. diagnosis, so like getting back, getting back in the saddle. Uh, oh right. You know, obviously not um, not in the same capacity as before, but you know, just uh, just knowing that it was, you know, all um, get jumping through all the hoops, passing the 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 right medical boards, and then saying getting cleared to fly. Right. Um, it was. Uh, it, it was. It was great. I mean, you know, um, one of my other uh, friends at work. Um, one of the other captains I work with, um, you know, he was able to go up with me uh, just to get uh, what's called a, a flight review, just to, you know, get me current, so to speak. And, um, yeah, it was great, you know. Um, you know, it was kind of funny. We were, we were both joking that, you know, probably the most dangerous, you know, pilots in the sky uh, are airline pilots that are in a small airplane because we're, you know, used to flying, you know, three times as fast and, you know, (laughs) five times as high. (laughs) So, uh, you know, that was pretty, that was pretty comical. Um, you know, because like our, uh, the jets, you know, that we fly commercially, you know, land at 150 miles an hour, for example. And, you know, the small airplanes land at 60 miles an hour. So it was, it was kind of entertaining, but, no, it, it was it was great to get back at it, you know, and it's just one of those feelings of when you've done it as long as I have, you just kind of feel like, you know, I mean, it, it's a far cry from where my ultimate goal is, which is to be back in, you know, a commercial airline uh, seat. But, you know, you just kind of get that feeling like, oh, yeah, this, yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be. You know, it would be maybe similar to you for like if you went out on an injury um, playing basketball, you rehabbed it and you got back on the court and you just kind of were back in your place, you know? Yeah. And you know, you feel, feel at home and it kind of validates all the work that you've done. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, yeah. That, that's a good feeling. I, uh, and you mentioned that, you know, you're, you're not back towards your ultimate goal. Um, right. Obviously I, you know, I feel like it'd be, you know, it would be ideal or, you know, something that you would want is to find a way to change the legislation or I guess the, the rules for the FAA uh, to allow sure. insulin dependent diabetics to safely, you know, take whatever measures necessary to fly a commercial aircraft. Um, sure. is it, are you underway or are those conversations being had? I know in some countries, um, from my conversation with, uh, Jeremy Robertson earlier in 2017, um, uh-huh. that there are, there are countries and I think there are advocacy groups in like the UK and, 
um, in Australia, and I know there's a couple in the U.S. as well, where in some countries they have now they they do now allow commercial pilots to have Type One. Um, what what's the process look like? How are those conversations going, and and how are you involved in those types of things? Right. So, um, yeah. Well, as a comparison. Um, you know, for, I guess, some of the non-diabetic listeners or even, you know, the, the diabetic listeners, the most other countries besides the U.S. actually do allow commercial airline pilots to be to insulin-dependent diabetic uh, pilots. Um, the um, ICAO, which is the International Civil Avionics uh, or, or Aviation uh, Organization, um, allows it, and that covers uh, most of the countries in Europe. Um, as well as um, Air Transport Canada allows it, um, Australia allows it, New Zealand allows it. Um, most of the um, countries down in um, South America allow it as well. Um, and just on a sidebar, um, of those countries that have allowed it, and most of them have actually allowed it for approaching 20 years now, um, they've never had a single instance of a insulin-dependent pilot having an issue in flight like they're the safety record is basically a hundred percent meaning they've never had an in-flight issue um because they have certain criteria and parameters that have to be met for those people to be in the flight deck and they're very very rigid with maintaining those parameters um and that's one of the big um data points that we use as um, an indicator to the FAA to say, look, you know, and, and when they have had meetings regarding this, um, you know, that's brought up and, and, and they're well aware of it. Um, and so, you know, part of my involvement has been um, this uh, um, aviation aeromedicine department um, that is the medical um portion of uh, a group called Airline Pilots Association, which is ALPA. They're the biggest pilot union in the entire country. You know, they represent most of the major airlines um, and uh, a good portion of the regionals as well. And so they have um, a lot of pull and or um, frequent meetings with the FAA on the aeromedical side of things you know, to address various issues um, regarding aviation safety and on the medical standpoint. So as this haul started, I got in touch with them, um, and, uh, started to work with, uh, basically their chief or head, um, uh, um, error or, um, plate surgeon and, um, you know, started to send in all my data, um, you know, CGM stuff, uh, blood glucose measurements, stuff for my endocrinologist and all this stuff. And, and, um, I kind of got put on the sidebar, not really sidebar, but rather was kind of, uh, partitioned as being someone that they wanted to use as a representation of what is possible. And it's not because I'm, you know, some, you know, super diabetic or something like that. It just, you know, uh, you know, leading up to this, I had spent as much, time as I possibly could educating myself on how to best control the the disease and tried to implement everything that I learned. And it's, you know, given me, you know, in my opinion, pretty good, um, you know, management. And so they wanted to use that along with the CGM data as, um, you know, a, a case to show the FA of, you know, what is possible. Um, when I first started with uh, advocating toward or with the FAA, they had no idea that um, the, I guess, the capabilities of CGM, um, like the Dexcom, you know, I use a Dexcom, and, you know, the ability to basically send real-time or, you know, um, reports to them that are non like that are uncorruptible. You know, if you use the Dexcom Clarity and you send them a report, there's no way for me to tamper with that, and I can send that to them once a week if they really want it, you know, and they just weren't aware of the capabilities there. And, um, you know, some of the technology that's come around. Um, so, you know, with, with that, you know, I've been working with that organization, um, and basically have opened up, you know, all of my medical records and they've actually used, um, a lot of my CGM 
data, you know, my blood glucose values, you know, yeah, I even will put in there some of my various, um, you know, bike races and, you know, show them, you know, what happens during exercise and, um, and how you can control it and, you know, how you can stop a high and stop a low and that type of thing so that they can take those data points and use them in presentations at these, uh, aeromedical symposiums to advocate for this because, um, coronary or basically coronary artery, uh, issues, um, diabetes and, um, uh, a couple various, um, um, brain and, and neurologic conditions are kind of the top three issues that, um, are, I guess, in the forefront of the, the aviation medical field. Um, and, uh, you know, the reason why, um, they're looking so closely now at diabetes isn't so much because of the type one gamut, because, you know, as you and most of the listeners know, it's a very small portion of the total number of diabetics, right? But it's the prevalence, um, of type two diabetes and not just type two diabetes, but insulin dependent type two diabetics. And when you take a look at the statistical data, you know, when you transfer that over into the commercial airline population, that's, you know, well in excess of, you know, three or 400,000, it's statistically impossible that those people, you know, that there isn't going to be a portion of that population that's, that's not going to be affected uh, by type two, particularly. Right. So the, the angle there is that, you know, if this isn't changed in some degree, you know, there's a potential to, for all intents and purposes, decimate the, the airline population or the airline pilot population because of the rising rates of type two diabetes. Wow. That's really interesting. Uh, because, you know, all, all I'm sure you've read the studies and uh, all the numbers point to a rapidly growing percentage of type 2 diabetics, especially in the Western world. Um, oh, yeah, it's massive. I mean, the, the, some of the numbers I've read is back in the like the 1950s census, there was something like 1.3 million uh, reported cases of type 2 diabetics and in the I believe it was the 2013 census. There was 413 million. Wow, that's. <laughs> I mean, it. Yeah, I think it's huge. <laughs> just the yeah the, I think they were saying in uh, by 2020, one in every three Americans will have some sort of type two diabetes complication or pre or pre diabetes. It was yeah, just staggering the numbers. So yeah, I mean. Sure. If, that, if if it's one in three of Americans, I mean, if, if that if some reasonable expectation could be one one in three airline pilots, right? So there's got to be some sure. sort of you know education and legislation adjustment, or like you said, there'll be a huge uh, shortage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and you know the the a little not to go way off on it, you know, down the rabbit hole, so to speak, but. Sure. You know the the premise of the original um, code of federal aviation or federal uh, regulations that prohibits uh, insulin dependent diabetics was put on the books in 1964. So, you know, as a type one diabetic in 1964, I absolutely agree that uh, sure. an insulin dependent diabetic had no being had no business being in a flight deck. <laughs> yeah, you know, without um, a doubt. Without a doubt, you know, and, and even I, I think I could even stand behind that argument probably until maybe the last 15 to 20 years because of, you know, the rapid advancements in technology that's occurred. But at this day and age with this technology that we have combined with proper education and knowledge on the you know, part of the user or the pilot in this case, you know, I, I think it's something that's can be done safely because, you know, the, my entire career has revolved around ensuring safety of the flying public. And, you know, when I was instructing, making sure that those that I instructed, you know, held the safety of the flying public in the utmost and highest regard. And I would take, I wouldn't hesitate for a second to, you know, leave, to walk away from you know, a 30 year career, 25 year long career. If I thought for a second that it was endangering the, the, the safety of the, the people sitting behind me. And I honestly feel like that's, that's not 
an issue if you're properly controlled and you, you understand how to manage the disease. And I think that's, that's what's so interesting to me about, about this particular change that's happening is because, like you said, the pilot's primary uh, function is to ensure the safety of the flying public. And so when you take your own, your own emotions and your own feelings out of the equation and you say, factually, there's still no danger for this person to do this, I think that's a really powerful message to send, you know, not just in this industry, but across others as well. And there, like you mentioned at the very beginning of the, of the episode, there aren't very many prohibitive spaces for type one anymore. Right. Uh, which is good. There are a few still, and they make sense. Um, military, for example, I believe is one, uh, certain portions of, you know, certain jobs in the military. Um, and, you know, for, I think that's a really strong thing because a kid somewhere can grow up and want to be a pilot. Um, and, you know, like kids do, right? You know, that I think that's still sure. one of the things that you can fall in love with really early. Um, yeah. And, and you know, and still have type 1 diabetes and, and say, hey, I, this is still my dream for my life is still possible. So I think, I mean, I, I, it's really important. Obviously, these things take a lot of time. And I think especially in the medical world. Um, that's something that I've just had to make peace with over the last five to 10 years or so is, you know, when, when you hear about a piece of research or you hear about a new piece of technology, it's going to take nearly a decade before it's, you know, be able to be used, um, at large by the public. And I imagine that it's similar in this case, but it seems like there's at least some positive momentum because of people like you and, uh, and different organizations here, uh, throughout the world that, it's it's reasonable to say that in the next 10 years or so we could see something like this you know uh changed right yeah no i mean i i definitely um you know and and that's that's kind of been our whole focus you know um you know i guess to give some folks an idea of what we're up against right now um you know one one of the uh flight surgeons that you know when when they're um you know, when they were meeting with the federal air surgeon, you know, they were in a meeting and they were discussing, you know, this issue of insulin dependent diabetics and type ones in particular. And, um, the federal air surgeon basically made a comment, uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but then they were to say, well, as a type one diabetic, you can't guarantee me that this guy isn't going to be walking down the hall, you know, two minutes from now, and have a severe hypoglycemic event and basically go into a seizure. And what if that were to happen in the flight deck? And the reply, you know, from the you know air surgeon that I'm working with um, that's advocating for this, um, for you know allowing it, his his comment was to say, well, that's not a very informed you know comment because you can't guarantee me that you are not going to have a heart attack walking down those stairs over there right now. So. You, you can't say, you know, you can't make those likenesses, you know? Right. Um, and, and, and his, you know, further reply to that was when it comes to diabetes with the technology that we have now, you know, with, you know, CGMs and you know, as long as you're, you, you know how to, you know, um, you know, you know, work it and recognize it correctly and, and use it, you know, correctly, you're, you almost have far more, uh, you know, a far greater safety margin than, other, you know, types of issues, you know? Um, so it's, it's definitely an uphill battle and, and it's kind of getting rid of some of the stigma, um, behind it. And on a kind of final note regarding the FAA, they, they themselves put together a medical review board in 2013 to do basic in, you know, of which had people from the ADA on there, um, some of their own flight surgeons, a number of practicing endocrinologists and uh, some uh, general practitioners to basically come up with a final ruling to say, is this something that we should even consider? And at the time, the FAA on the medical branch was biased, and and they they basically did this thinking that this medical review board was going to just crush it and say, no, this is completely preposterous. They have no business being in a flight deck. Well, the medical professionals um, 
actually came up with recommendations at the absolute farthest end of that, which means to say they came up with a system and a set of criteria and recommended that if a diabetic type 1 or type 2 can maintain these parameters and is well controlled, can prove it through their endocrinologist and has their, you know, data to back it up, you know, there's absolutely no reason why they shouldn't be allowed to continue. And they kind of were taken aback by that. And that's one of the things that we're, you know, directing them towards to say your own medical review committee, you know, you know, said that this should, is safe under these parameters. So why can't we move forward with this? You know? So. Well, and I think like you said at the very beginning of the episode, like this is a lot about education, um, sure. you know, and put, put ourselves, take type one diabetes out of our immediate circumstances. And, you know, we would be in the same position as some of these other people, you know, it's, um, a lot of times I see a lot of emotional rants and posts about from people in the type one online community, especially. And, you know, sure. so sometimes it's hard to remove yourself and remember that you used to not know anything about this. Um, oh, yeah. And, you yeah. know, you would pass somebody on the street and not give a second thought, uh, you know, if you saw them testing their blood sugar or, uh, you know, with an insulin pump, you wouldn't know any of the day-to-day details. So, you know, I think having a little bit of patience with even with these experts and, you know, people who hold a lot of power and influence. Um, sure you know, it's a different, it's, it's a new thing to them. Um, and you know, they obviously don't have the, the personal interest that we all had when it was introduced to us, uh, to learn it. So it, it takes even more time at sometimes. So it's, you know, it's, an, it's interesting to see, you know, it come into the public eye. Um, on one hand, you know, it's a little bit, it's, it's disheartening to me that there are more type ones than there ever have been. But the sure. then, but then I think the only reason that that is is because we're living longer, we're able to diagnose it earlier, and there's more treatment options. So people aren't dying of you know whatever they thought they were dying of before. Um, sure. And so which which I think is encouraging, and and so you know now that there are more of us, and there's a little bit more bigger mouthpieces in the community, and better organizations focused on education and ag- advocacy, we're able to uh, you know get a little bit more publicity and change some things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and, you know, folks that I work with, you know, they always kind of joke that, you know, um, <laughs> you know, that I'm one of the fil- fittest person and people in the building. And yet I'm the only one in the building that doesn't have a medical, <laughs> you know, and they say, you know, friends of mine, they say, man, you know, like, how do you not get frustrated and, and, you know, um, I guess upset with this. And I said, well, there are definitely days when, um, I get frustrated, but not, not because it's like, a uh, comes from a, a position of anger or, um, you know, malice or anything like that. It, it's just because, you know, I miss doing what I want to do, you know, as a career. But on the other hand, you know, it's like you said, you have to have that perspective of the people who are in these positions. They just don't know, you know, they, they just, they, they don't, they've never had to deal with it. You know, and until we take the time to try and educate and, and expand their knowledge, you know, that's where your energy is best spent, not, you know, like you said, becoming um, adversarial or, you know, um, rattling the saber, so to speak. You know, you, you, you know, you're you just need to, you know, put your efforts and your energy into um, what can be done positively to move forward, you know. Yeah. And I think that's the most important thing, you know, to, to keep in mind if you're, you know, out there as a, as a type one or uh, a parent of a type one or somebody who's advocating for more education is to just take a step back sometimes and just realize that, um, you know, this is, this is a new thing uh, and it takes time. And, uh, you know, every little, every conversation makes a difference just one at a time. Um, you know, to change the perspective overall. It's, uh, you know, the, the work, I'm really glad that there are people doing work that like, like that you're doing that we would never necessarily hear about. It's not highly publicized, but I'm, I'm happy that we have the opportunity as a community to get behind it and know that um, there are people advocating for, you know, type ones to do what they want to do and, and live the, the lives that they want to live. Uh, and you know, hopefully before long, those, those things will get, those obstacles will get moved out of the way and they'll be able to do it. 
Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you, uh, um, is that, do you, you know, kind of long for the days like this is your captain speaking? Is that, is that going to be your, like, <laughs> that going to be your, your peak moment? Your, um, uh, your Olympic medal, your, uh, you know, whatever that, that, uh, that Everest for you. Um, I guess on a, on, uh, a, you know, for my own selfish, uh, purposes. Sure. Sure. But, you know, I think, um, it will also have a lot more, um, I guess, uh, it, it, it'll mean more than that to, to me to say, you know, something significant has been accomplished here and it's opening up doors for, you know, people in currently in my condition, um, which there's 11 that I know of, um, that were current airline pilots and were diagnosed late after they were already at an airline. But it will also open up the doorway for more transparency and more honesty amongst pilots in the FAA and actually serve to increase, you know, safety and transparency, which, you know, I think is, you know, a, a best case scenario. So. Oh, totally. Totally agree. So, yeah, and it's, it, yeah, it, you know, but that, that would definitely, you know, it, it would be, it would be great, you know, um. And it's just one of those things where, you know, I just have to, you know, be patient and be thankful that, you know, um, I, I do have the position with the company that, that I'm at. And so, you know, if we move forward on this, it's literally going to be an issue of, you know, a matter of weeks and I'll be back in the flight deck. Um, and that would be, you know, great. But, you know, that's that's the long game, so to speak. You know, sure. like the short game is, is like, you know, and that's why I've kind of turned to um, doing a few of the podcasts. You know, I, I just, I want to get the word out to people to be proactive with their own treatment and care and to, and, you know, I don't know how much time we have left, but, you know, just some of the techniques or things that, that I use to, you know, try and ensure, you know, your own health, you know, you have to take ownership of this and no one or no piece of technology is going to do it for you. You know, and um, well, with that, with that in mind, uh, what are some of those things that you, uh, you know, some tactics, so to speak, that that you use to uh, take control? Well, you know, um, before I was uh, diagnosed, you know, it was, you know, I had a had a minor in in sports nutrition and, and physiology and so on, and you know kind of started to go back and look at some of those facets, um, in more detail once I was diagnosed and, you know, of course came to understand that, you know, diabetes is a, is a disease of not just blood glucose, but insulin control and hormonal control and, and how all those factors, you know, play into your, your body chemistry. And, and so as I started to do more research, you know, I started to look more and more closely at, you know, how diet can be used to add stability to a type one diabetic. And, you know, I've kind of found my way into, um, basically the, not, not really the keto type diets, but a, a very low carbohydrate, you know, higher fat, moderate protein, um, diet approach. And, you know, that, um, I've kind of honed in on that more and more throughout the last three years and the last, um, you know, year I've been, you know, fully on to, you know, like what, uh, Benny Tortorich talks about is, you know, no sugars, no grains. And, yeah. you know, we, we don't eat any grains, you know, um, and there's tremendous health effects for even non-diabetics, of course, but the ramifications on what I've seen is in, on my own control of, um, the, you know, diabetes is that it's had a, a massively positive effect on it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, just removing the vast majority of carbohydrates, you know, like I, I usually stay below 50 grams of carbohydrates a day. Sometimes if I'm really active or doing a mountain bike race or out backpacking or something like that, yeah, I might bring it up to 80 or so, or, you know, maybe even a hundred, but, um, you know, it's kind of that idea of, of, uh, you know, I, I like to deal with hills instead of mountains if possible. So with yeah. blood glucose control, you know, if you're dealing with 20 grams of carbohydrates, you know, that's a lot smaller 
of a potential hill than 80 grams of carbohydrates. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and I, I find personally um, riding those hills rather than the mountains, like you say, um, I have better energy throughout the day. Oh, yeah. Whether I'm whether I've worked out that day or not, I work out pretty consistently three days a week. And on my sure. off days, is I eat, eat less carbs. And, um, you know, just, man, it, it changed my life. Like the way that I, you know, when I was – an athlete, I was young, so I sure. ate a lot of crap. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes I think, man, if I had just like you know, applied any of the actual things that some of my nutritionists would tell me, maybe I would have been in, uh, you know, made better strides in my career in terms of conditionings. But that's neither here nor there. But now, you know, in the last couple of years, experimenting with Whole30 and no sugar, yeah. no sugar, no grain type ketogenic thinking and now kind of dipping into intermittent fasting a little bit and still eating the no, the low carb, um, you know, whole food type diet, no grain. And, you know, it sounds really boring sometimes, but man, I just feel so much better. It's just a marked difference. And, um, I would encourage anybody to, you know, to go down that path and find something that they like, uh, because there's so many different plans now, uh, sure. you know, that are easy to follow and have tons of communities of their own that you can connect with. Um, and I, you know, I was just talking to my girlfriend the other day, there's so many, three years ago, you did a whole 30, you had to make every single meal yourself, but now there are multiple services that you can order meals and get them delivered yeah. or whatever the case is. And, you know, make, just makes it easier on you. It's, it's good stuff. Um, yeah. And I'm a huge believer in, uh, you know, that type of Vinnie Tortorich style, uh, diet planning. Sure. And, you know, there's just, there's, there's a lot of is out there, you know, and, and, you know, there, there's also a lot of bad information out there too. You know, there, 100%. you really have to take the initiative to, you know, get good sources of information and then, you know, figure out what works for you. Um, you know, but just across the board, you know, I'm a huge, and even on the, you know, American Diabetes Association, they, they've recently put this on the website from what I can tell. They even mentioned, um, you know, the lower carbohydrate type diets, you know, and, you know, right from the get go, I just kind of, it made sense to me to say, well, if carbohydrates make your blood sugar go up and if the type of carbohydrates, you know, kind of can determine how rapidly it goes up. Well, if you start removing some of those from your diet, wouldn't it make this constant tug between insulin and you know carbohydrate load um, easier? Not, I don't know if easy is the best way, but more manageable, I guess. Yeah. You know, and and it just started to make sense, and I've you know seen those positive things. You know, you know, like on the Dexcom Clarity reports. You know, like if I pull mine, you know, consistently for the last over year and a half, you know, I'm in range, um, about 93 to 98% of the time. And my range is 70 to 120. So, it's pretty know, impressive. Um, that's proof. That's proof in the pudding right there, man. Right. You know, and, and I don't say that to be braggadocious or anything. I, I more say it as I have the numbers to say, look, this, this works. And, it, and it's not to like be come from a standpoint of I'm right, you're wrong, but I get so, you know, I have to bite my tongue out of these Facebook groups because you see so many people out there that these Dexcom graphs of just their blood sugar is moving so rapidly that the Dexcom can't even keep up with it. You know, it just, and, and they're, they're asking for help. And yet the information sometimes they're getting from, some medical professionals and, and, and some just general bad information or, you know, dogma that's been around for a while is making their life so frustrating. And I just, that's kind of why I've wanted to go and start doing a few podcasts if possible to just get that word out there so that people can go and start looking around for other options that will alleviate some of that burnout and stress that we all, you know, deal with. It is. And I, I, you know, diabetes burnout is tough because it's so psychological as well as, as as well as physical. Um, and I think sometimes those, you know, Facebook groups or Instagram, um, contribute to that a little bit because, you know, you see a lot of diabetes. Um, 
And, you know, sometimes that's good, and I think a lot of times it can be, but sometimes it's tough, too. Um, and, you know, I uh, I was kind of curating, and I, I did some selective unfollowing, and uh, it, it was nothing personal for some people, but um, sure. I, I just had to get some diabetes out of my feeds um, because, you know, the, I'm a person, too. <laughs> and I was like, right, you know right. this, if this gives me a negative feeling, I need to... Uh, I kind of just need to get it away from you and cleanse it a little bit. And, uh, and yeah, that, I mean, it, it helped. It had to remind me that, you know, there I'm doing this to help people. Um, but you talked a little bit about ownership earlier and you got to take some of that for yourself as well, because if you don't, who else will? Um, sure. And, you know, I think that's a big thing for, um, for people in those groups and just, that that's just a general, um, you know, if I had to give somebody, uh, one piece of advice, and I'm going to ask you what that, what you would say to someone in a second, but use your voice right. and speak up and ask for help, but also get involved, uh, do your, do your research, study your maps, um, and, and find what works for you because it, you can find something that works for you. There is something out there, no matter who you are, no matter what you like, no matter what you like to do, there is a solution out there for you to, to live well with diabetes. And I just believe that. Um, so, you know, whatever that is, use your voice, speak up and find it. So, yeah, that's so now, um, because my question uh, that I always ask everyone takes place in an airport, I get to at least <laughs> rib myself a little bit over here and, uh, and kind of laugh behind the scenes. So uh, picture yourself in an airport, which I'm sure has happened before. Um, oh yeah. Uh, they're going to shut the door to your gate uh, in 30 seconds. And for whatever reason, maybe it's you're flying the plane. You can't miss this flight. Um, but you run into somebody who's either been recently diagnosed or is struggling with their type 1. Um, and you you have 30 seconds to tell them what's the one thing that you tell them. Okay. Um, yeah, there's so much, you know. Um, but... Yeah, it's, I wouldn't say it's a tough one, but it's, it's just one of those things where, you know, there, there's so many things you'd like to say. But I would just, uh, you know, let them know that if they take the initiative and, you know, um, you know, just take the initiative to educate themselves, it will get better. You know, if they're struggling and, and it, it, it will get better. And that they just have to, you know, the old phrase, stay the course, you know, um, keep those blood glucose values in, in check, you know, educate yourself um, and look, you know, play the long game, so to speak. Um, look for your long term health and, you know, don't become too defeated by, um, you know, a, a occasional frustrations that are involved with diabetes and don't let it become overwhelming in your life, you know, and just let them know that, you know, if you can, um, understand it and control it, it will become less of a portion of your life so that you can enjoy everything else that life has to offer. And, you know, in that same time frame, I'd probably be writing my name, phone number and email down and said, you know, I got to go now, but, um, in two hours I'll be on the ground again. And if you ever have any questions, please feel free to get in touch with me. I love it. Yeah. There's a, there, there's a, a couple ways people answer that question. Uh, and you almost really hit all three. So I, I love it. They either they give a one quick piece of advice. They, you know, either missed, maybe missed the flight, uh, I've had a couple of people say, I'll just get another one. Uh, and then they, you know, leave their contact information. So you, you know, hit two out of three, uh, really loved all that. That's, uh, it's very true. And I think sometimes, especially the part about not letting it overwhelm you, um, it's easy, which is easy to do. And sometimes I got to remind myself of that as well. Yeah. Yeah. John, thank you so much for coming on the show, my friend. And, uh, I really think I'm going to invite you back when, uh, when you make that first flight or when that, uh, FAA legislation gets changed, I, I'm just believing that. So whenever that is, uh, I imagine I'll still be doing some sort of diabetes related stuff. So, uh, let's make it happen. Absolutely. 
Uh, cool. For anybody that wants to connect with you online, uh, are you uh, in- involved in social media of any kind? Is it an email? What's the best way to get in touch? Um, yeah. So um, I actually have just recently in the last six months um, do Twitter. Um, however, do keep in mind that uh, I'm not a professional Twitterer, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Great. Um, so it's just uh, capital T, uh, one capital D. Uh, flyer um, is my Twitter, um, and then um, yeah, the email. My email that you have, um, if you want to include that with the show notes, definitely will. Um, you know, again, just do keep in mind that uh, you know I have another job outside of uh, you know outside of this gamut. So um, hopefully, I don't get bombarded, but I'll do my best uh, to to get in touch with folks if they have any questions and. Yeah, you know, um, I, I'll do the best I can to help you and, and, you know, just let people know what's worked for me and, and um, you know, hopefully help out some folks that are, you know, um, you know, wanting to have uh, questions about, you know, diet, nutrition, exercise, you know, um, do a lot of endurance stuff and strength training. So, yeah, feel free to get in touch with me. Definitely will. Thanks, John. I appreciate your time and, uh, and for coming on and great insights. Um, and we'll be in touch. All right, great. I appreciate it.